in all of your 30 plus years in radio, when you feel a belch coming, but you, you know, you have a good solid 45 seconds left on the mic. What do you do? Well, <laughs> your best. <laughs> That's about it. <laughs> We've had to start over a couple times because this squirt soda, shout, shout out to squirt. I have, I've never tried it before a week ago or so. I'm, I'm kind of getting a liking to my sugar-free squirt. Um, they, they have uh, allowed us the opportunity to start this podcast a few times because I don't want to belch in the microphone. <laughs> so shout out to Squirt, but actual and special shout out to Schubert Club. Since 1882, Schubert Club has been creating inspiring musical experiences in the Twin Cities. More on them in a bit. Also, a special thanks of support to Salastina. Salastina is classical music's wingman. By day, they're world-class performers and studio musicians who've played on your favorite films. By night, they're on a mission to broaden the definition of what classical music was, is, and can be. More on some of their upcoming program here in a bit as well. But um, yeah, this whole thing about uh, hiccuping in the microphone, uh, accidentally belching in the microphone, that's, <laughs> you, you don't have those privileges on live radio like we do here on podcasts. So what did you do whenever that would happen? I would just, uh, my voice would turn like this and I would just really <laughs> hurry up so I could turn off the mic and start the music, you know. <laughs> uh-huh. But, you know, having that composure um, isn't just for, the radio, when you go into orchestral spaces, an orchestra concert, you just don't let you, them rip. You got, yeah, you, you you get more into that state of mind as well. I mm. went to my first uh like orchestra orchestra concert in a in a little while on my last trip to New York. I went and saw the New York Philharmonic. Shout out to Wong Lu. So um, the American Composers Orchestra, we have a number of partnerships and uh, and programs that support composers and get them performed. Well, one of those culminated in uh, a piece of music performed by uh, composer Wang Lu um, by the New York Philharmonic, a really special moment. I saw her in the lobby after uh, the performance. She gave me this big hug. You know, composers are just so happy to have those uh, performances. And I think, you know, having that sort of music platformed by an ensemble like the New York Philharmonic of all orchestras is even more impactful. Uh, when the recording comes out of the piece that uh, she had premiered, I'll be sure to share it here. But uh, just to celebrate Wang Lu, uh, the composer, a little bit, I wanted to share a little bit of some of the aesthetics that she creates. This is a tune called Urban Inventory by Wang Lu. It's performed here by Third Sound Ensemble. <laughs> Definitely a contemporary aesthetic and music with a little meat on it. It has lines for you to follow. I I find myself really sort of leaning in and I think is really representative of the direction that many composers, uh, not all, but many composers are are going in. Really, uh, really cool to hear that aesthetic again, as realized by the New York Philharmonic, you know, especially when a composer has um, uh, artistic access to mm-hmm. glockenspiels and timpani and all sorts of stuff, you know, incredible sounds can be created. So it was phenomenal to support her and and go to the concert and uh, and hear that music. And then when the concert opener, when that, you know, seven to 10 minutes was done, 
it was back to business as usual, um, beginning, you know, with the second piece on the program uh, with the Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto um, as performed by Lisa Batiashvili. Mm-hmm. It was a great performance. Uh, Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto. Where would you put that in your, uh, <laughs> this gets played a lot, this doesn't get played so much? Would you say that- That's uh, a this, cornerstone. This is, this is one of the more familiar That's works. a cornerstone, absolutely. It was really interesting for me to be in the space hearing that piece of music specifically. You know, they ended the concert with Sibelius too, living here in Minnesota, you know, with the Scandinavians. We get plenty of Sibelius, you know, so mm-hmm. I can I can talk about that another day. But hearing this violin concerto performed live by this orchestra, it was- really just something for me to hear something that I know so well, you know, could definitely hum along with the whole thing and matched with the experience that I had just had listening to the Wang Lu composition. Mm -hmm. It was like, this is a totally different experience. Of course, most folks in the audience really, really just enjoyed it. There was Big applause, big cheers after the first movement. You know, they didn't stay silent after that first movement. And it was to a degree hard not to have some sort of reaction to it. For folks who don't know this piece, here's the end of the first movement of Tchaikovsky's Violin Concerto and what inspired one of the most traditional of audiences to break the rules and start screaming. wasn't the New York Philharmonic, but that was Lisa Batiashvili uh, with Staatskapel Berlin. What can you say about the uh, grandeur mm-hmm. that so many of these traditional pieces have and how that re- relates to people's just desire to want to stand up and scream as soon as it's done? And it's also really athletic, too. I mean, mm-hmm. the, you know, the violinist really goes through a workout yeah. throughout uh, the course of that performance. And so I would put it right up there with watching you know, your favorite basketball player do, you know, a three-pointer or something yep. like that. You get into it. Yep. I found myself in a weird situation because hearing that live again and the audience reaction, it's great. And it's exciting to see people interested in that music still. But for me, it really affirmed the fact that I genuinely do not want to go to a concert to hear the canon. And I didn't want to, you know shit on people's experience or like say oh well you don't really know what the literature is out there you're still excited about this you know i'm i'm mindful of that i I don't want to rain on anyone's parade but it's gotten to the point that for me the talking about new repertoire and wanting new repertoire on the stages has just transformed into a genuine disinterest in the canon. You know, hearing the New York Philharmonic live for the first time, I left feeling like there was no way for me to really know what this orchestra contributes uniquely to the world of orchestras because the recordings sound just like the live performances, sound just like the next live performance of the Tchaikovsky and the next recording. It it just left me kind of empty, especially again, considering 
The concert began with this new piece by Wang Lu that I just found so interesting and, you know, just appetizing in a in a way. And then, okay, we have the the Tchaikovsky. It's got me, you know, thinking about the role that personal taste plays in the transformation of of classical spaces. It's like we have new listeners like me who are just unwilling at this point to go back to the traditional repertoire. We have the so-called traditional listener, the typical listener who is just not interested in hearing what they would call crunchy or challenging music in these spaces. It's like this sort of stalemate is what's holding back classical music's transformation. My question is, I was about to say, you just summed it all up. <laughs> whose job is it to shift? For whom should the expectation be shift a little bit? How do you respond to that that quandary? I think the the people that are most vocal about their opinions are in the minority. It's kind of like politics and mm. religion and things. The people who are the loudest are you know, they're not representative of everything, yeah. you know, of, of the, the whole group. And like I say, I, I give uh, classical radio listeners some credit that they're more adventurous. Mm-hmm. And I think that that, I think that we could really partner with orchestras to kind of uh, be one of the legs of the table, not one of the legs of the, one of the, one of the spokes that, um, that, I'm I'm not making the Just, right analogy. So, I mean, but, but basically, you're yeah. saying if the orchestras push, and then we put, and we the can, radio stations will be right. able to push. So now here's the question that I have for you. So the concert starts off with the interesting piece that really captivated you. Mm-hmm. So it sets you up, right? It's your 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 mouth got used to that appetizer, and now you're ready for you know a, a main course that's going to complement it, right? Right. Okay. What if we flipped it? What if they started with the Tchaikovsky and then the second piece on the program was the new piece, Intermission, Sibelius II? Do you think that that would have had a, would that have landed different with you? I think so, because a part of my attitude toward the Tchaikovsky, if I'm just really being honest with myself, was the feeling that the programming is okay. Let's get this new thing just out of the way. You know, go go ahead and perform. Do sure. do, do your little thing mm-hmm. so that we can get to the real music. So I feel like if maybe if the Tchaikovsky concerto were first, it would create a sense of more pageantry, more celebration around this new premiere. You know, now we get to listen to this before the before the intermission. And I think if, there's something to be said about that. And if we want to get even a little bit m- more specific, the first piece on on the uh, first half on the first half should relate if it could relate somehow to that new piece, similar sure. instrumentation or an influence or they both deal with winter, etc., mm-hmm. etc. Yeah, perhaps we might be uh, getting closer to that transition that you're talking about. When I think about uh, programming, if I just have to have something traditional on the on the program it's that first piece so let's stick with the short concert opener concerto big symphony sort of Mm -hmm. scheme Mm -hmm. for me the concerto is especially where you 
where where I tend to really let my hair down. This is where we put in the super contemporary piece, maybe the concerto for an instrument uh, that you don't hear from every day. The Minnesota Orchestra in May is performing uh, Wynton Marsalis's tuba concerto, you right. know, so stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, if it is something from uh, the so-called canon or something that has that traditional aesthetic, something that you may not know all that well. I, I, I just think that when we put the so-called war horses in that spot, it's it's just a, a, a missed opportunity. So again, if I have to go traditional in some way, it's probably going to be with that first piece, you know, sort of letting the typical audience know right from the start of the concert, sure. okay, you're safe, sure. you're here, you know, here's some sounds you're like warming up the space and then getting to the uh, new exciting thing as opposed to just throwing it out there for the first thing so that yeah. it's, it's done and, and we're over. That's kind of just what it felt like to me. Got you. But I think it's very important to consider the firing order of these pieces. Oh, yeah. That's... Um, and uh, that it, that's evidenced here, uh, and also in the in the, um, the there was a recent performance with the Minnesota Orchestra where people left after the intermission. It was Joel Thompson's Seven Last Words. I know mm-hmm. people who got up and left during check five, um, including Dale. He was there, you know, <laughs> <laughs> right? But there's strategy, and it can be done, you know. In a, in a way that's pleasing and makes sense. Hey, you know, the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra understands that there's strategy too because they took the intermission away. They said, no, you're going to sit here. <laughs> when we went down there to see Paviel, there was no intermission. They went straight to Beethoven for <laughs> Okay. So, you know, that isn't lost on everyone. Yeah. And, and, and again, I say these things out of just my genuine feelings because it's not lost on me how some people will would just be really upset by the idea that the Tchaikovsky concerto, you know, is not something that should be revered or just celebrated under whatever whatever circumstances. I get it. There are people who love Tchaikovsky and they deserve to have a space to enjoy that. They've always had a space to enjoy that sort of thing, at least that aesthetic. I tend to think more about the people who love new music, who want to see a more progressive, more contemporary approach to programming. And we always have marginal access to those aesthetics in those spaces. So again, it brings me back to my question, who should shift more? Whose job is it to uh, to shift a little bit more for the sake of some sort of, you know, both and situation? I feel like as a listener, as a concert goer, I'm already doing the shifting. I have right, to sit through right. a concert that's mostly what I'm not there for. I think there has to be more shifting on the side of the typical audience member of the uh, the traditional. Sure, yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. And and like I said, with uh, classical radio listeners, I think that there are more of them that are open to sampling something new than than are going to be angry about. You know, the fact that you played a, a five minute new piece that yeah. takes them out of the aesthetic. Yeah. We're going to return to that question of, I'm going to return to the oh, question good. anyway, of orchestras leading the charge for the sake of radio stations and maybe for uh, music schools and and that sort of th- mm. thing, them, mm-hmm. them really being the, the leaders in those spaces. Um, I'm also thinking about the fact that I went to a new music concert while I was in New York. It was a chamber concert. I'm going to talk a little bit about that in the second movement. And it was just for me personally, so much more engaging and enjoyable and interesting of an experience. So is it just more realistic for new music people to continue to develop our art form and our advocacy 
until we have the orchestra-sized spaces. And we can let <laughs> Tchaikovsky and Sibelius live over there. And we go to our concerts that we want to live to. Does that, a, does that seem more viable? It's, it certainly looks like that is the direction that it goes. Yeah. You know, the, it's, 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 there's no gray area. It just seems like it's, it's either the canon or the new. And it doesn't have to be that way, but <sighs> that's what it is. I'm just saying that's that what that's it, what it like seems like. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and there are benefits to the creation of new spaces. You know, you can create and platform exactly what you want. You can celebrate exactly what you want. You can uh, dress and clap and do all of that stuff exactly what mm. when you want. And you can say exactly what you want. I think that's what makes the space that we've created here so special, right? Doing exactly, saying exactly, platforming what we want, celebrating what we want, all toward building something new. That's right, man. Yep, let's jump in. Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy. Thanks so much for joining us this week. To returning listeners, we couldn't do this without your continued support. Thank you so much for continuing uh, to listen and contribute week after week. You're, you're, uh, you're more appreciated than I can ever say. Thank you so much. To new listeners, if this is your first time checking out the Triloquy podcast, Triloquy is a show that takes the phrase classical music and challenges all of the status quo and tradition surrounding it. We take pieces of music, we take conversation, we take all sorts of things that may or may not have traditionally been approximated to the phrase classical music, but we throw it right there in that pot all toward the ultimate goal of decolonizing classical music. For more information on the show, to check out past opuses and to contribute, visit our website, T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y dot O-R-G. In addition to your very generous support, support for the Trilogy podcast comes from Schubert Club. Coming up on January 30th, Schubert Club is releasing their latest museum mini, their music museum mini, featuring Tommy Morse on the harpsichord. Now, Scott. Yeah. <laughs> the harpsichord, speaking of classical radio, is one of those instruments that you get emails about, mm -hmm. isn't it? I feel like I, once upon a time, may have been one of those people who just have an aversion to the harpsichord, but really getting a closer proximity to the instrument, uh, performing with it. I have some harpsichord actually on my master's recital. I played some Vivaldi and I was backed by a harpsichord mm -hmm. instead of piano. Really just learning more about the instrument was my way of sort of gaining an appreciation for it. And I think something like this is a great opportunity for, for, for that to be brought and just a love or at least appreciation of harpsichord. And let me be also, let me also be clear that I think that in the right setting, everything can be beautiful. Yeah. Anything can be right. <laughs> that is true. And so, you know, like you said, in the, in the Vivaldi or the Bach or the early stuff, it makes sense. And keep in mind that in the sixties, English bands had a heyday. English pop bands had a heyday plugging the harpsichord in. I mean, songs. early soul. There's harpsichord in the right. Jackson Five tunes, and it know? works. So, uh, so uh, be sure to uh, visit Schubert.org to check out the uh, Music Museum Mini. 
featuring the harpsichord. You can learn a little bit more about that instrument. Also, again, shout out and thanks to Salestina coming up on February 4th. Uh, they're hosting their happy hour number 111 with Derek Sky. Join them for a complete performance of Derek Sky's As I Heard When I Was Young before they recorded in the studio. That's on Saturday, February 4th at 11 a.m. Pacific time at Barrett Hall at the Pasadena Conservatory of Music. More information at salestina.org. Huge thanks to their support. Also, a quick shout out and thanks to all of the radio stations that uh, are picking up Gateways Radio. You can learn more about that at gatewaysradio.org. Seth Parker Woods is the third movement guest this week. Really excited to have them on the show. Uh, in the second movement, we have... Uh, Music inspired by television, inspired by a video game. That's by, right. <laughs> by Scott. I'm going to bring in uh, some new music by Eric Heilner. In the fourth movement in the triloquy this week, we're going to pay a visit to Florida, unfortunately. <laughs> but for now, down to the basement, <laughs> we're going to jump into movement one. So this week, we're going to get started. I'm going to. Uh, get us going here uh, with a sharp, something from the Washington Post. It says, 23 for 2023, composers and performers to watch this year. So this is sort of a play on, you know, some people will put out a 30 under 30 and, and that sort of thing. So mm -hmm. uh, the Washington Post put out a list of 23 composers to pay attention to in the year of 2023. It wasn't that long ago, exactly two weeks ago, as a matter of fact, that we were talking about lists and mm -hmm. how, you know, they're neither here nor there. We shouldn't put too much weight in them. What makes this list different than, let's say, the Rolling Stones 100 best singers of all time? Well, I'll tell you how it's the same. Celine Dion ain't on it. <laughs> okay, I hear you. Okay. <laughs> Are you upset? So, so, no, because Celine Dion is not a composer, <laughs> not not in the way that these composers compose, okay. you know? Okay. But but is, is, is there a difference between lists like those and lists like this one and to me there's not no to me there is not yeah i mean you know uh what about kalina bovell you know kalina bovell is a conductor we're talking about composers mm -hmm. you know see so i i'm gonna get uptight <laughs> not even having all the details well i appreciate lists like these because unlike some of those rolling stones lists it gives people an opportunity not only to learn about uh up and coming composers out there on the scene um i think it just reaffirms the idea that composer is a profession S still to this day you know in this year of 2023 you say composer to most people and they'll think about beethoven and those folks but there are people you know people of color even who are really managing to make a living um as composers and this uh this article really highlights a, a, a few of them. One thing before uh, I, I get into a few of the composers on this list that I wanted to highlight, I wanted to uh, just address the opening of, of this uh, article. It says here, you've heard it all before, classical music is dead. It's one of our culture's most enduring variations on a theme that classical music is dying or aging or rusty or at the very least dusty. It's irritating but understandable. No art form seems more proud of its past nor more reticent to show you its new stuff. That's, you know, that adds on for me the importance of lists like these because this Washington Post writer uh, themselves are, are saying, this is what classical music status quo is and what people think of, but here are some people who are making a name for themselves, making a living and living a, a free life out here as, as composers. So it's, it's cool to, you know, not only see the list, but see uh, uh, an acknowledgement of why, you know, living I composers, why we need to be highlighting right. them. 
here on Triloquy, we tend to talk about institutions sort of broadly, maybe even centering um, uh, orchestras and, and orchestral institutions, sometimes opera houses. Well, in the opening of this article, it specifically and intentionally points at classical radio mm-hmm. as one of the players. It says on classical radio, they seem to vanish into thin air. Do you have a bone to pick with this writer? Is there more from your perspective, more new music coming through than people may typically think? Or does he have it right? It's still not to the percentage of the program that would uh, satisfy mm-hmm. the, the the new music listener. Yeah, not in my mind. Yeah, um, it, th- that's been the way of things. It's sort of like you know the new release comes through, you play it for six weeks or you know whatever, and then you know it rises up and then it falls away. It rises up and falls away. The constants are the canon anchor pieces. You know the the Tchaikovsky violin concertos and yeah. the Sibelius too. Yep. Well, hopefully publications like these, lists like these, just humanizing uh, the music, the new music in this way can be of help. Because I think if there's a, if there's a case for the human being behind it, you know, maybe there can be a stronger place for actually making room for the music. Anyway, mm. uh, just a few people that I wanted to uh, highlight for this list. I'll have the full list in the uh, description for you to check out. On this list, they have Xavier Foley. I uh, have been following him for a while now, several several years, an incredible bassist. Uh, I met him at Sphinx uh, years ago, and he's someone who I think is showcasing a fresher take on chamber music, to be specific. Chamber music that is uh, not as uh, so-called contemporary sounding, as experimental as some of the things that are out there, uh, but still something fresh and new. Here's a, a tune by Xavier called Shelter Island. Xavier Foley here with our favorite violinist, Randall Gooseby. Here's a bit of this. video to to go along with it. I'll have that linked in the description. Shout out and congratulations to Xavier Foley. Uh, the next person I wanted to shine a quick light on from this list is Brittany J. Green. Brittany is a Triloquy alum. And for me, more than I think about uh, Brittany as a brilliant composer, I think about Brittany as someone with a brilliant mind. Mm. Uh, I, I'm thinking back to our Triloquy conversation and there was no question that stumped her uh, any just sort of obscure thing. I think we were talking about Julius Eastman a lot uh, in her feature, but anything that was obscure to me, she had uh, studied and and been learning about for for years. Uh, Brittany comes from the band world, which I always appreciate a clarinet player and does some really interesting things in composition um, at the intersection of acoustic and electronic sounds. Mm. Uh, so here's a, a little sample of some of Brittany J. Green's work, a tune here called Dark Forest.
you know, that aesthetic in general is one that I think that we'll continue to see more and more of as we move forward. Performances of orchestras that include some sort of electronic component. It's, sure. It's, it's really, really cool. I love to see it. Joy Goodry, you know, probably my favorite bassoonist right now. We've talked about uh, Joy a lot on this uh, podcast. Uh, another uh, member of the Triloquy family, a very progressive mind, just the way uh, Joy thinks about things in general are outside of the box. You know, we were talking about boxes last week. Everything right. that Joy engages is outside of the box. And as a bassoon player, I think it's even more of note. You know, it's one thing to talk about being a very uh, flexible and um, and genre bending trumpet player or sax player, violin player, you know, gu guitarist. But bassoon is one of those instruments that is a little hard to break out of its traditional mode. Uh, mold, but Joy has been doing that, you know, a, a, on a on a brilliant level. Uh, a track that you know I re I return to probably once a week. You know, we, I've I've shared it here on Trilogy before. Is Joy's Voices of the Ancestors music here for Improvisatory Bassoon and African Drum Ensemble? Just an incredible work that I'm always happy to return to and share with y'all. Joy often talks about how that performance really changed the trajectory of, of their career. That was a, a big moment for, yeah. for, for them, mm -hmm. especially considering the fact that this was done for a black audience. So we're not even talking about a typical classical audience. We're talking about an audience that is removed from the uh, traditions and the conventions, and they loved the the performance. You know, especially yeah. considering the the aesthetics and the cultures that it points to. It makes me think about the conversations. Uh, that we've had in the past about so-called extended techniques, right. and maybe you know this is just a, the the way that the the instrument should fully be played, not only within that box. Anyway, I think uh, Joy definitely uh, deserves a spot on this list. Um, and the last person that I wanted to uh, highlight that made this list uh, was Adam Sadbury. So Adam Sadbury is not yet a member of the Triloquy family, but this is someone who is uh, very quickly becoming a, a close friend of mine and Dell's. I met Adam uh, at a Gateways Music Festival uh, years ago. We connected uh, down in Memphis years later. Adam as uh, the former principal flute player of the uh, Memphis Symphony. I always thought it was really phenomenal that, you know, a black city had an orchestra, you know, not only with a black conductor, shout out again to uh, Kalina Bavell, who you mentioned, but, you know, black musicians, they have a principal uh, black violist, a black bassoonist down there, and, and Adam was a, a black principal flutist. Anyway, since those days, he's moved up here to uh, St. Paul, Minnesota. Um, we've uh, been connecting musically, creatively, and otherwise. Adam Chance Namyoho Renge Kyo, which is, <laughs> is uh, really great, and I think a huge contributor to the success uh, that he's seeing. And he's bringing history alive um, in a really poignant uh, way through his music. So he's been working on a piece that tells the story of his grandfather, who was a civil rights uh, journalist uh, back back in the day, 
and uh, for for many news stories, was the only journalist to cover certain events um, and 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 things that happened in Memphis during mm. the civil rights movement. Interesting. So you know that that bit of his own history and how that connects to broader Black history is coming together uh, through uh, music. I think it's it's incredible to see the direction that these composers are really taking the uh, the genre and the idea of composer into. I could sit here and um, you know highlight each of the twenty three composers on the list. Uh, congratulations to everyone. Uh, but those were my notable picks, folks who um, I either know or have been on the uh, Triloquy podcast. Always great to you know see. See the kids doing well out there. Doing getting, all right. Yeah, getting getting the uh, recognition. Uh, Adam Sadbury's new piece uh, isn't out yet, uh, so I can't share the recording with you. But uh, what I did want to do is uh, share Adam's take on a part of the uh, more traditional side of the cata- catalog. So here's Adam Sadbury uh, with pianist Artina McCain, who is the uh, piano professor, one of the piano professors down at the University of Memphis. Their take here on William Grant Still's Summerland, the arrangement for flute and piano to get us into our next accidental. Twenty-three for twenty-three. So, if you're looking for some new music, if you're curious about what composition looks like today, not only just for the uh, younger generation, but in in general, there are folks of all ages on this list. Uh, be sure to check that out. Let's continue to support people. Congrats to to all of them. Congratulations. All right, we uh, have our next accidental for this week, and it's a. Uh, it's a little different it is. than uh, <laughs> it is. what some of these 23 composers are creating, but something that is and hey sh- showing how viable a new direction in classical programming really can be. That's true. That's true. And I'm putting Kalina on that list anyway. She's probably going to be a composer, you watch. But I'm looking at AJC.com. I'm going to give this a sharp. AJC.com, the uh, Atlanta Journal Star. There's a new concert series to launch with GZ and Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. Now, just last week, we had articles talking about how uh, classical music was uh, waning. It was in its death throes even just a few moments ago. The start of that article was about the... Um, a variation on a theme that never mm-hmm. gets old yeah. is that classical music is dying. Well, we have uh, an example here of a shift. You know, we're talking about who needs to do the shifting. Mm-hmm. Um, this uh, article starts off with merging notable artists, especially hip hop with classical orchestras, is not an anomaly. I'm going to skip down here to Greg M. Garrett, an Atlanta based live event curator and producer, wants those experiences to be ongoing. Uh, that of a hip hop and hip hop and orchestral mashups. They're typically not afforded the opportunity to be in such spaces. Black people represent less than 2% of musicians in an American classical orchestra, according to a 2014 study by League of American Orchestras. Garrett wants Atlanta to be the springboard for shifting that trend. Yeah, I think it's of note, you know, again, the first uh, part of this article says that merging hip hop 
with classical orchestras is not an anomaly, and it lists stuff going all the way back to 1994, you know, as it's uh, been happening with a, a number of rappers and orchestras. We, we never read about one of those collaborations being a flop or no one showing up. Yeah, because it's this always one's already sold, sold out. out. It's, yeah. it's always sold out. You know, when Nas performed with the National Philharmonic, you could not get in the building. When Nas performed with the Detroit Symphony Orchestra shortly after I left the, uh, the, the group, it was it was sold out, packed. It's not well. I'll, you know, maybe I'll say more about that later. But it's not risky program. I don't even think it's fair to call it adventurous programming. It's surefire programming. It's 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 a surefire way to sell tickets and get people into your hall. He goes on to say, Atlanta influences everything. Black and brown people. When we show up in places, we excel at it. So when you think about the arts, music, sports that we typically haven't been a part of, once we learn. We excel, and one place that we have not been represented in that way that I would like to experience is classical music or formal music mm -hmm. orchestras. So he's actually talking about not getting rid of the dress code or anything like right. that, but actually getting dudded up to go to these places for this performance. Yeah, it's a really interesting way to look at it, but I think it highlights just how deep the status quo and the culture surrounding orchestra goes. People who have never had anything to do with it understand that this is a shirt and tie, you know, mm -hmm. uh, tuxedo, black dress sort of sort of space. And I think there's something to be said about leaning into that, but leaning into that in a way that creates novelty, you know, instead of uh, adheres to tradition. Because come on, you know it's going to be some. But bedazzling or something on the tux is going to be some gold chains. It's not going to just be, you know, Alfred and them like on Batman, the tuxedo he was wearing. It's not going to be that, no, you know. <laughs> I wouldn't so, suspect. So I, I, I think that just highlights that maybe there's a possibility to keep certain aspects of the tradition, but to just freshen them up a little bit. How about that? He says that was the impetus for Classically Hours, a new concert initiative that aims to create an intimate, formal experience by blending the work of popular musicians and symphony orchestras. Mm -hmm. So legendary Atlanta-bred rapper and entrepreneur Jeezy is the series' debut act. And it talks a little bit about how he's, quote, reinventing himself. And you took issue with the word reinventing in this spot. Yeah. So word, word usage is important. Say more about your pushback on reinventing. Yeah, I think I see it more as an expansion. And I think it's the the role, the job of people that are more on the orchestral side of things, have, have more of that track record to affirm that, you know, for folks like Jeezy, this shouldn't be considered outside of you or or some sort of uh, transformation that you're undergoing. You're just engaging more of yourself. I think that way because I think about it conversely. I don't see this as a straight up transformation of an orchestral space as much as I see it as a natural progression and expansion. There will still be the orchestra. I'm sure there will still be a conductor. People will still be dressed up. Unlike concerts that, you know, feature Tchaikovsky and those things, it'll be sold out. So there are certain aspects Shame. that are in place and um, we just need to view it as more of more instead of more of different or mm. or other you know word <clears throat> word usage is important like when he talks about pairing an artist with an orchestra mm -hmm. i think that that word usage makes um 
the point of being careful about the programming and thoughtful yeah. about the programming. Eventually, Garrett hopes that Classically Hours will be more than just a local experience, although showcasing the breadth of Atlanta's musical talent is a priority. So he's looking at this being like the classical Cirque du Soleil or something, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, yeah. So earlier, we were talking about orchestras being the leader and larger systemic change for mm-hmm. classical music. If the orchestras do it, well, first, let, let Let's let's keep it on orchestras for a second. We've seen with a number of composers how it works. If this orchestra plays this composer, that means this composer is safe enough to be played by this orchestra, and then two more orchestras, and then four more orchestras, and now you know we have the name of a contemporary living composer who most people know. You know, sure. so so how that domino effect kind of works, and of course that extends into classical radio you know what goes on movie soundtracks and and that sort of thing mm-hmm. so let's use this as an example i think the success of something like this will be hard to ignore there will be other orchestras to take on collaborations with some of their uh popular rappers i know the memphis symphony uh, uh i don't know if they still have it but uh, back in my day they had a, a series called opus one and on that series you know they brought in uh three six mafia you know the the mm-hmm. hometown heroes there Sure. I'm sure if the Toronto Symphony hasn't yet performed with Drake, <laughs> that that is something that yeah. could be in the works. Something that I talk about all the time uh, for my former orchestra, the Knoxville Symphony, how incredible it would be to have a Pops with Dolly Parton, you know, and how that would sell out. Yeah, how you would. wouldn't be able to get in, in, into that building, yeah. you know. Yeah. So so this so this idea of taking the hometown hero of a genre that may or may not be so-called classical music, how that is is successful. More city and more city, I believe, will continue to to do it. As that is normalized over time, do you think that is something that could bleed over into something like classical radio, orchestral interpretation of hip-hop? Is this just as simple as the orchestras need to normalize it for us to be able to engage it. Yeah, who's going to jump first, right? Yeah. Who's going to who who's going to jump off the bridge first? I don't know. I think really it's just a matter of time though as well. I think that tastes will eventually catch up with the no, programming will catch up with the tastes. Mm-hmm. How about that? But how many times have we talked about a track record? Yeah. And it looks like the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra is saying, "Okay, we're going to we're going to double down on on this series and make it a real thing." And then if they get it going next year and everything, then we can start going, hey, fair play for Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. It's really doing the work to to showcase something new. And, and let's just face it, Atlanta, for all intents and purposes, is the black capital of the United States. Black culture comes out of Atlanta. Black television and movies come out of Atlanta. Most of the uh, fa- most famous rappers from the South are Atlanta-based or Atlanta-aligned. So in a city like that, you know, in a culture like that, I feel like the Atlanta Symphony would have no choice but to engage some of that. Let's say you're an orchestra executive director in the Seattle area in the 90s when everyone is listening to grunge. There has to have been some engagement of that. I'm thinking about uh, compositions that uh, exist out there that uh, I'm forgetting. I think uh, the last name of the composer is McAllister, wrote a series of pieces inspired by, you know, Alice in Chains and, and, and all of those groups. So mm, it, it just seems like when you're, when you're in those ecosystems, you have to speak 
to that culture. The Mexico City Philharmonic or whatever they're called down yeah, there. Yeah. I'm sure they're playing something that sounds Mexican, right? Sure. So why would the Atlanta Symphony not dive in into the pool in this way? I think they're making the the exactly correct decision. Check out AJC.com. The uh, article will be posted in the description. Shout out to DeAsia Page, who did the reporting on that story. It's so important to try to consider engaging things like this. So congratulations to the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. Congratulations to all of the audience members that are going to get to um, engage that. And congratulations for to Jeezy for expanding who he is as an artist. To get us into the second movement, we're going to take a listen here to a Jeezy classic, Me Okay, and the explicit version this week. You know, I did the clean version last week of the Kendrick. Oh, good. We're going to pass it along as the composer intended. Hope you all enjoy a little bit of this as we get into the second movement. First tell you motherfucker trapper died at Me Okay. Mr. Whip or not and get a half a pot at Me Okay. Mr. F, I'm talking, you should listen, game is free, okay? Mr. Got two old ones and two half ones, yeah, that's free, okay? Leave a body here with two bad ones, yeah, that's me, okay? Mr. Re and Noah by two phantoms, yeah, that's me, okay? On that avion to the head, hey, but me, okay? Never put a fist before my bread, hey, not me, okay? I'm a fool on that avion, no snow me on that liquor. Approach me if you want to, I will smoke you like a swisher. You know my game, tizzites, you know that soft tizzites. What do you think would be the potential impact of recordings of these orchestral hip-hop mashups? Let's forget about the classical radio stations. They put that on the hip-hop stations. What do you think that could possibly mean for orchestral music for it to be making it onto the hip-hop stations? <laughs> All of a sudden, their uh, hip-hop shows start doing better than the uh subscription concerts <laughs> whoops and now people can go to their hip-hop station for classical music you know instead of <laughs> <laughs> but anyway we're here in the second movement where scott and i are going to talk a little bit about some music that we have been spending some time with personally in the last few days or so get us started what you got this week so uh i'd like for you to tell the people a little bit about the video game the last of us because so, i'm not yeah. a gamer and you have played it, yes? Yeah, I don't consider myself a, a gamer. If I called myself a gamer, the actual gamers would be, you know, in my inbox, okay. you know, trying it with me. So let, <laughs> so do not let me call myself a gamer here. But I think it's fair to say if there's a game that I have made it to, that means it had very, very broad appeal. So mm. I played The Last of Us. You know, it, it was a while. It was when it first came out, I can't even remember when, but it was many years ago, basically a game about uh, the emergence of a fungal disease that takes over many people's human bodies. And there's uh, one person who is unaffected by it. And uh, there are scientists who want to study her and try to uh, find a cure and that's as much as I'll say, because I don't want to give away anything that is coming sure. up in the show adaptation. But, you know, another one of those just dystopian sort of things. Um, you know, you you tend to be pretty nonchalant about most things. But this, but this show <laughs> is something that has actually caught your attention. What, what makes this different than any of the number of zombie things that have been on TV? Well, just so that people know, you can find it on HBO and mm -hmm. they release a new one on Sunday nights and they're on to the second episode. Um yeah, I, for me, uh, I was a little bit concerned about this is going to be yet another sort of zombie-esque 
uh, film, but the way that it is shot is so different. Mm -hmm. It's so, uh, it, you can't help but be sucked into it. And when we were looking at the second episode a little bit earlier tonight, I was watching Dell like cringe and and his eyes get big and gasp and all this sort of thing. It's very moving the way that just the videography is. And Dell said that it matches up pretty closely with the game and that there's some dialogue that's the same. Yeah, and I would even say visual because I didn't watch the first episode, but I was there when y'all were watching the second episode. And I think visually just the color schemes, the angles of the camera, it, it really does match what I remember experiencing in the video game. It's it's one thing to create. This second movement is not about you know <laughs> celebrating this show at, and at nauseum. But what what I will say is that there is something to say about the creation of a digital scene translating in a way that requires someone laying on the ground with a camera or placing a drone here or or whatever, you know, all mm. of the creativity that uh, it, it, it takes to really realize it in a way that engages people who are not familiar with the game, but doesn't isolate people who are expecting a certain sort of aesthetic uh, because of their experience playing the game. So mm -hmm. from, from, from what mm -hmm. I've seen so far, it looks, uh, it, it looks like it's, it's really honoring what uh you know the the reason why the story of the last of us is one that so many people know you so know? let's uh let's go ahead and cut to the chase here in the final scene of episode one a radio plays 1987's uh depeche mode uh never let me down again from music for the masses that was their uh second most popular release you know, commercially, but for me, that was Depeche Mode at their zenith. Mm -hmm. They had really come into their own as far as this sort of dark uh, electronic band. And this was, for my money, the best exponent of it. And in the TV show, if they hear, if these smugglers hear an 80s track, they know that there's trouble. And the fact that it was Depeche Mode, that made the hair on the back of my neck stand up when this it's just such an iconic opening stage to the uh to the song and for me that set the hook for the rest of the series as far as i'm concerned So you can imagine that Depeche Mode got a bump in their streaming service uh, searches and all that sort of thing, sort of, of like Kate, like Kate Bush did with Stranger Things. Yeah. So uh, before I ask the question, go ahead and say. Well, I, I was just gonna say, like I mentioned uh, with video games, if I make it to it, that means it's gotten some really broad appeal. I'm 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 I think about Depeche Mode in a similar way. I could never name one of their tunes, but if someone says Depeche Mode, that is a band I've 
heard of, you mm-hmm. know. So so they've had some broad success. Why a classic? Why why a culture, a tradition? Why is Depeche Mode so important from your perspective? That era was the uh, pre-eyeliner uh, emo phase, mm, right? Okay. This was uh, dressing a lot in black, smoking clove cigarettes. And Depeche Mode, always, like I mentioned, they had a dark sense to them. But this was at its finest point. This was, uh, it still had a little bit of the dirt from the street, you know, their older sound on them. And they hadn't quite gotten the studio money and gotten really produced like they did on Violator, their mm-hmm. number one commercial release. This one for me was just this weird transitional sort of monster that they created. And this was the, this was the soundtrack of 1987, 1988. So would you uh, credit them with like uh, shifting a trajectory, like sort of being a, a pivot point when it because you said pre- uh, eyeliner emo, <laughs> you know. So, so are they more representative of a of a trajectory, or more representative of the shifting of 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 a trajectory? They're closer to the root. They're closer mm. to the to the the uh, the headwaters, I guess you could say. Okay. Um, before all the tributaries, you know, started doing their tributes. So all of these mom get out of my room rock rock bands of the late nineties and oddies, <laughs> they they need to put some respect on their fathers to and, mode. <laughs> that's right. And you know, music for the masses that you know, the Never Let Me Down Again was just one of the bangers from it. Strange Love was on there, Behind the Wheel. Go and listen to the Behind the Wheel Route 66 uh remix. Psh, great driving music. All right. And I suppose go check out uh, The Last of Us if you have HBO Max. You seem to be into it. It's a good show. All right. Well, uh, this week I want to feature uh, music by a composer named Eric Heilner. So this past Saturday evening, uh, I went to uh, the recital that featured uh, The Method String Quartet. Shout out to uh, The Method. Um, And the first piece of music was one by Eric Heilner. For me, it was so great to see the different ways new music for string quartet can sound. Some works were sort of straight ahead, very hummable, maybe some based on Ukrainian folk tunes and that sort of thing. There were tunes that were uh, very much out there with you know intentional, really scratchy sounds on the strings, mm-hmm. playing the instruments in ways that are uh, different and using them as percussion and and everything uh, in between. Just so again, my vibe, the the, the type of concert, so called classical concert uh, that I want to go to. Um, so I'm not going to uh, share one of those tunes today. What I have been listening to is a work uh, by Eric Holliner, again the composer who invited me to this concert. Um, his uh, short story. For viola and piano. This is a, a sort of tune that I would describe as straight enough ahead for the typical audience member, but still, you know, has enough meat and seasoning on the bones for someone like me who likes to hear a little bit uh, something different. So we have uh, once again here a short story for viola and uh, piano. Let's take a listen.
for a story for viola and piano, in addition to uh, several other works by Eric Hollander, are available on an album called Modern Sounds in Classical Music. We talk about this a lot, the, uh, the assumptions that go along with the phrase new music or contemporary music. I would say that piece of music is quite accessible and it's quite contemporary. It can, it can be uh, both of those things. If you were programming for classical radio, um, of course, something like that could fit into the specialty new music show. What's your sense on how well that could be received in regular rotation? About nine, ten o'clock at night. That feels like um, any other contemporary composer that uh, the average listener probably wouldn't be able to identify them either. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So no, it's you're talking about an aesthetic now, though. You're talking about an overall taste and feel, right? Yep. That's not out of place. What about that is out of place from whatever you, whatever else you hear at nine ten o'clock at night on your classical radio station? I agree. I would go as far as to say, you know, maybe for a drive to work, you know, a, a seven, maybe eight o'clock. Nothing, nothing wrong with uh, a, a little flavor, you mm. know. First, for first thing in the morning. Uh, I mentioned this before. It's, it's what I add to it is just the humanity the the personhood behind these pieces of music we can argue about bach and brahms and beethoven all day but these are individuals who were marginalizing and 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 pushing to the side the appreciation that you know i see over and over again from composers when they are in the audience having the opportunity to hear their music being performed live and seeing other people applaud and you know throw babies in the same way that they do for Tchaikovsky and and all of those things at the uh, end end of a concert, it 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 makes me feel a way you know the way that composers embrace me and thanks for uh, attending their their concerts. Mm. It's it's really something that I think will help uh, push the genre forward if we can. And again, back to that Washington uh, Post list, if we can humanize new music, if we can connect stories, personalities, faces, lived experiences, uh, Instagram handles, you know, all of those things to the idea of composer, we can we can move things forward. So a uh, huge shout out to uh, Eric Hollander, shout out to the uh, Composers Collective of New York, and shout out to all of the composers out there doing your thing, you know, uh, in, in the face of an industry that does not want you there. And, and I hate to say it that way, but that's, mm. that's just what it is. And the proof is in the pudding We're we're seeing the old war horses centered even more than I think we did back in 2020 and in 2021, you know, we're easing back into, uh, the status quo. So, you know, we, we have to continue to support Everyone on the ground. That's what I, I hope to continue to do with uh, composers, with these uh, new music concerts, and um, to to highlight as much of it here on Triloquy uh, as I can. But we're uh, moving here into the third movement, uh, where this week's guest is Seth Parker Wood. Seth is a, a cellist of note, has performed all over the world. He's faculty um, at my uh, alma mater, University of Southern California, and he's performing here in Minnesota this month. He'll be featured at the Great Northern Festival on a piece for Ice Cello. It's a piece uh, called Ice Bodies. We'll talk a little bit about that uh, in this uh, conversation. Life as a cellist, doing the new music thing uh, in general, and a little bit about um, his uh, recent performance of George Walker's Cello Sonata, Black composer 
um, of note of the 20th century and uh, whose legacy is becoming more and more known to more people. To, so, so to transition us into my conversation with Seth Parker Woods, we're going to hear Seth and pianist Andrew Rosenblum perform a little bit of that uh, cello sonata of George Walker, an excerpt of it here to get us into my conversation with Seth Parker Woods. Hope y'all enjoy. I just recently moved to Los Angeles and, you know, I've been moving around since I was 17. Um, you know, a few years here, three years there, two years, one year, one country this year, another country sure. the next. And I'm exhausted. And so this move and taking the professorship at USC um, was kind of part of this kind of shift for me um, to finally like lay down like solid, solid roots. Um, but I will still be on the road. <laughs> As yep. I'm currently in DC right now. Oh, okay. Uh, but uh, so I'm 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 definitely still moving around, but not I don't think with the frequency I'm learning and realizing just because of um times are shifting and the career shifting and how I kind of keep up with that and, and the the choices I, I make as far as what I like the performances that I want to do and the the work that I want to do and the collaborations I want to do, it may not be that I need to go after or take every single offer that comes through um, or as with the frequency that I have been, in, especially in the last five or, or six years. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little um, bit about that that move to Los Angeles. First of all, I am a, a part of the Trojan family as a as an alum. So, uh, <laughs> so can, congrats to you for that first and foremost. Uh, I wonder what your experiences have been in academia as an active performer. I think so many of us see it as being one thing or another. Um, yeah. And while my former teacher at USC, shout out to Judy Farmer, you know, she's very much a performer. She's not as much of a traveling performer as you seem to be have have you found that those two worlds are uh complementary for you um you have to make it okay <laughs> it's, all, it's okay. all in the life i mean you can have musicians of course that are very situated in one city and most of the activity and work they do is there they may have a few travel trips here and there over the course of a season or a few seasons, uh, but most of their identity performatively is connected to the singular city that they, they choose to live in and, and make roots in. Uh, and then there are the others who are deeply on the route, but they still have a home base. You know, everyone has to have something, you know, somewhere that grounds them, hopefully. Um, and I've had to really fight and figure out, you know, how to make that really work. Um, for me. And there are moments, you know, when things are really busy at the university, it's hard. It's hard enough just to carve out the time to practice and prepare for the things on the road, whether they're the things in the city that you have to do performatively or in academia, like faculty concerts, et cetera, or the things that I have to do out on the road. So just carving out that time between, you know, all of the course hours of teaching. Um, and so I've found, I, I'm not going to call it a balance. I've found... <laughs> a platform um, <laughs> sure. which is constantly in flux you know based on like one month there may be you know five concerts another month there's 10 concerts on the road and then other months there's three or two or, no, or none you know um which is always very calm for me because i'm like oh it feels like i can only do one thing right now <laughs> mm -hmm. so it's it's a little hard and i'm 
I'm at a period now where I am definitely thinking about how that's going to look in the next three years, you know, and mm. the things that I'm setting in motion now for the for the next three years. And there are fewer things, but there that are still very active and trying to kind of connect more of my life in LA, but I'm not stepping off the stage per se in that way and, and only teaching. Uh, I think I'm still too young um, to, to retire from the stage. Sure, yeah. <laughs> so how does this impact the way you approach teaching students? I'm sure you have students who, you know, as exactly what they want to do is to be on stage, you know, playing that Dvorak uh, concerto someday. I'm sure maybe you have students who are more interested in the more jet-setting lifestyle that you've uh, uh, set up for yourself. Do you do you engage, you know, those worlds with your students or how do you, how, how does your experience impact your approach to teaching uh from the pedagogical side i mean there's there's the 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 mentorship that goes kind of with that thing people forget to talk about mentorship as part of pedagogy um or disregard it uh so, right. uh, so for me, it's really looking at and giving them a, a very clear bird's eye view because there is there is a school of thought or practice where teachers don't necessarily talk about paths or they give you a very kind of narrow lens of what that could look like. And talking with some of my students now, those that are kind of coming up through academia in the age of the pandemic now, and the landscape is very different and how they, how, you know, um, curriculum is approached, how they're approaching and how they're looking at school is also very different. So the idea of trying to map out and show really what my career looks like. Of course, in some ways, I feel like we're kind of on the same level. We're not, but you know, but to give them a glimpse of how I cut my teeth, you know, yeah. in doing this and, and carving out my own um, my own world, which I'm constantly, you know, evaluating and trying to figure out. And it's never like, oh, you get this, and it's like it's kind of like you're nine to five, and then you just do that until you retire. No, it's. Uh -huh. So trying to give them a real a real idea of what the field actually looks like and that yes you finish and that doesn't mean then the orchestras are going to open up and there's going to be you know 700 seats you know <laughs> available for everyone to take it sadly it's not the case right. um and so trying to give them an idea and working with them now to understand what collaboration looks like because i don't really think anyone builds a career singularly Yes, we have our individual time that we have to put in the work and we have to kind of figure out exactly where we're trying to go. But there are so many people along the way that help us kind of get to where we're trying to go, even if it's a small like uh, conversation you have that kind of helps shift and shift a narrative or helps you figure this thing out or that thing out. Um, so teaching them kind of team building um, and finding the team that that hopefully will eventually work for you and you understanding exactly what you're doing and what definitely what you're not doing, definitely what you don't want to be doing, um, or at least keeping yourself open enough to realize that you're not inventing the wheel. And there's so many that have come before you, but at the same time, what is going to distinguish you from the, you know, 2000 other graduates that are coming out of school every year, you know? Right, right. Um, and then what that life on the road really looks like. <laughs> I'm like, is this what you really want? Because it's a very different, it's a very different life and trying to figure out. And there are moments where I'm like, I'm done with the road. Oh my God, can uh -huh. I just be in my own bed for like a month, please? And make my own tea and my own. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> I need my candles. I need all ignite. I want to just look out the window, like you know, the neighborhood watch person. You know, <laughs> just <laughs> happening on the street. You know, so so though there are those things, and uh, and then there's others who just like they're they're more d- deeply the homebody, and it's like for them is to start to think about and question kind of where they are in their lives, who they are. I mean, 20, 25, even 18, you you have a semblance of kind of who you are and what is comfortable for you. There are moments you've obviously you're going to have to stretch yourself. And I was talking with a student um, just in a part of their lesson. It's like, you know, what you choose to do now, what maybe you get your degree in doesn't necessarily mean that's what you're going to do forever. Maybe that's a that's a, a percentage of what you do, but you may be the cellist, but you also may be the arranger. You also may be the contract. You also may eventually be the artistic director or the executive director or the producer or whatever it may be. I said, so let this be part of your bedrock of your journey, but don't feel as if this is what you're going to do forever. I said, because that's what I thought. And then you look at the CV now and I, there's all these other things, you know, so be open to so many more things that you have so much more to give to yourself and to the community. Yep. And I can't help but to think about how repertoire fits into this conversation. I'm sure the Bach cello suites aren't going away anytime soon when it comes to cello <laughs> pedagogy. No. But we also live in a in a musical ecosystem where a cellist who can improvise, for example, is very marketable, or a cellist who uh, even has more of a grasp on more of the uh, cello repertoire that hasn't always been censured. There's a certain value in that. How do you approach teaching specifically from the repertoire uh, point of view, from the repertoire standpoint? So there's a bedrock, right? There's a bedrock we all have to kind of kind of go through to understand how we get from here to there and understand like what these composers that are, that are living now or that are recently living um, are drawing upon when they're writing these compositions. So it's like if you don't have these certain types of techniques and tools and uh, understandings of color and palette and timbre that come from well before, maybe change differently, you know, seen through a different lens in these more contemporary works, um, how do you then approach them? So I think it's like, one is not exclusive. They're not monoliths. They're very fluid, but it's being able to kind of break it down. So everybody does a little bit of everything in my studio. (laughs) Okay. Okay. That's good to know. (laughs) Oh, so that's the short answer of it all. But, you know, I make sure that they have what they need. And and, and of course, that's always changing day to day. Something, something new pops up or I see something new or something. They they bring up something that's come up from their own practice sessions that they want to um, to delve into, you know. So it's it's always very. Um, I learn so much. I'm learning probably just as much, if not more, from my students by teaching. And I think it's a great thing to, if you. Not everyone. I know not everyone wants to be a pedagogue or, or should do that. Um, but for those that really do it, I and then love it and put a lot of you know effort into it because it's it's work. Um, mm-hmm. It really is satisfying and, and you you learn so much from your students as well because they're seeing many of these things that we've been living with for the first time or they're approaching it from the first for the first time. So their experience of it and the way that they look at it and how we can simplify it and not necessarily not that I'm coddling, but also kind of giving you the tools. You still need to woodshed it, you know, yeah. on your own. I always say I am the 20% of the equation, you are the 80% of the equation. Because <laughs> you're gonna spend 80 bad percent in the in the practice room getting it together. And then I'm here to just help you keep it moving. Um right. right. So um so I think it's important for them to kind of go through this, but also for us to kind of break open 
um, kind of the seal so they understand exactly how it's related and not necessarily just how, how it's related as it's um, connected to that one composition, but how it's connected across centuries, you know, right. that work and how it's, how it's evolved, where it came from and then how it's evolved. Yeah. Yep. And you're doing phenomenal work in your performance life, uh, unearthing or shining a light on repertoire that hadn't always had a light shined on it. Uh, by the mm -hmm. time uh, this conversation uh, comes out, you will have uh, performed uh, much of the music of George Walker, a name that many people still don't know, unfortunately. But before um, I ask you about George Walker's music specifically, I wanna ask you, you know, there's a, a growing dialogue surrounding the music of William Grant Still and Florence Price only being a starting point. People having panels uh, titled, you know, Beyond Still and Price, for example. Mm -hmm. I wonder what your ideas are on celebrating newly formed traditions like the music of Still and Price versus continuing to highlight more of these composers who have been historically marginalized like George Walker, for example? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, this is a great one, <laughs> but a complex one. I mean, I think it's important, definitely, there's always first, right? And there's always someone that's coming, that's coming, that's, I guess, being chosen by the canon or being chosen by the mm. tastemakers or self-appointed tastemakers or whatever the situation is that decides this name, this composition is the thing that we are going to talk about, that we're going to celebrate, and that is going to represent XYZ community. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and then so many others get left behind or don't get known. And because of the times we're, we're now in, you have so much more exposure that's readily at your fingertips to Google and find or share whatever the situation is. Um, and I find even within the works of Florence Price against even George Walker and, you know, he, they all have their their trials and, and triumphs you know, in their time, but it's always interesting, even like, as I've been talking recently about Walker's cello sonata, which is from 1957, but when you hear it, it doesn't, I mean, it really doesn't, sound, it, it has stood the test of time, I should say, mm -hmm. and it still sounds so fresh as if someone could have written this in the last 20 years. Um, yet, when it was written, it did not pick up steam. It really didn't. And then I was talking with the colleague of mine, Astrid Sreen from the Juilliard Quartet. And she's like, well, you know, in the 80s, people were just playing this, the middle movement, you know, as encores. And sometimes we would know it was the Walker Sonata because they wouldn't announce it. And it's a complete injustice in that way. You know, the, you have this living composer that's here and probably by this point had already won the Pulitzer for Lilacs. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and this is before, I mean, the, the Walker cello sonata comes even before the um, lyric for strings, you know, so this is well before all of these, these kind of workhorse pieces that so many people are playing now, and it's still kind of hidden. It now more people are playing them. Um, but I think it's important for me, as I, I see kind of the past and where we have come from and the voices that were kind of thrust to the forefront, not without, you know, deep fighting and work to get to even get there, let alone maintain it or be dis you know, to, uh, be forgotten and then rediscover it again. And so much energy being put behind it to push it back to the forefront. But I think it's important. It's hard to put everyone out there. There's just so many creators, but I think we can do a little bit at a time and, and find the voices, find the stories that we really believe in, especially those that are less played, like the Walker is one of them, but especially the, most of the music on this, um, this portrait concert that's tomorrow, um, 
are all works that are really not being played from from Walker's oeuvre. So I know there were so many that were that are quite famous works that I could have programmed for this, but these are works that I think that really need to be heard, especially come from the earlier part of his compositional career. Does the uh, fact that you actually met George Walker uh, play a role in your uh, approach to his music? Do you think you've been given something special uh, having actually met this man? Uh, yeah, uh, I mean, I, I met Walker when I was 21, I think I was, uh, by Ursula Oppens. And I kind of first came to, I of course, I knew of the lyric for strings. I had heard it, gorgeous. Um, but I'd never met him. I, I didn't know anything beyond that. I hadn't played any of his music. And at that time, I was working very closely uh, with Ursula Oppens, the pianist. And we were working on a piece of his uh, uh, titled Modus. Now, this is a larger chamber uh, music work. Uh, chamber ensemble work um, that also features two guitars, which is kind of kind of the central forces in this work. And this is another work that I really wanted to program, but you know, <laughs> there's only so much budget, only so much time, right. and finding all the, the musicians to guitars to get aren't cheap. <laughs> <laughs> and just rehearsal time, and just thinking about all these different things. And so it's something that has been on my mind to kind of program for a long time. But um, it was. The, that that early experience of working with Walker, who demanded a lot and sought a lot, and I think demanded it especially of his younger peers. Um, some could call it complicated at times or grumpy, but I think you know he's just pulling from his own experience. As we all we've seen what others have not, not seen, so and we see possibly where you are trying to go. So these are extra tools, or these are things I need you to, to understand and to get. But that's an old school way, you know, of, of thinking and raising people. You know, me like he's basically like my uncle. You know, that type. Everybody's an uncle or aunt to another generation. Sure, yeah. Um, and so I felt that, and he demanded a lot, and I'm thankful for that. Um, and I try to just imbue that with these next generations of people that are. Um, that are kind of coming up and doing music, but also understanding kind of where this music is situated in his compositional life. Let I mean, connected and also outside of just his performative life as an amazing pianist um, and trying to make sure that people are able to experience and understand kind of um, where he was and the, and the, and the stories that he, and the, the imagery that he was trying to paint um, in that time. And all the works are so different, but what, you know, what remains true is kind of his creative voice that kind of is strewn through all of them. It doesn't matter, especially when you hear all anything that features any any that features piano in any of the works. It is very clearly like this is Walker. It, it, it only Walker writes like this and uses these this type of tonality in, in his writing. Um, and it's quite special. And when you really start to hear it, you really understand it even more. Yeah. Yep. From my uh, perspective, uh, as a radio producer and radio host, as it applies to the works of George Walker, I found that, you know, with regularity, he is celebrated, but only his more traditional sounding works, quote unquote, you know, the, the aesthetic that most people are more used to um, ascribing to that phrase, classical music. Uh, but mm -hmm. of course, he wrote so much more. I wonder what your thoughts are on helping broader audiences understand and appreciate his music or music in general that they may consider crunchy or challenging or or dissonant. How do you cultivate appreciation for those aesthetics? I mean, 
I don't want to sugarcoat it and say, oh, you know, imagine this. Or imagine <laughs> sure. This. You know, I mean, he's writing from his real lived life and it right. finds its way deeply. You know, I was talking with Gregory Walker, his his eldest son. You know, even in the cello sonata, there, there's a sense of like angularness uh, that's that's sparkled or strewn really very much so through the first and third movements. But at the same time, he used these very dense, but also soulful uh, jazz influenced chords and how he builds out the harmonies underneath all of what feels quite angular. Uh, and he, then he kind of can switch roles very quickly and the character completely changes and it becomes this very melodic, very beautiful to the ear thing. And then he will flip back again. So it, it almost can, in some ways can feel schizophrenic, but it's like no one else could have written, <laughs> written this in such a way that had this type of grasp on the understanding on writing for this particular time and writing from his own lived experiences. Um, and so I try to just share that with people and, and, say that you know there necessarily are some struggles that are built inside of it like in the second movement of the cello sonata it was technically the first drafts of that um of that movement were to be like a, a love letter to someone he was mm. very keen on um and then it, as i've heard it goes that um when he shared that um uh, that draft <laughs> uh the person did not like it and i don't think they <laughs> okay <ended up> <laughs> So it's like almost like unrequited. I think he thought of it to be like almost like a little love letter or like a little mixtape or something. But it was unrequited. So, yeah. so, so there are these things, these lived experiences, and you feel that. And I don't know if he did some alterations to this the movement after sharing it or not. I'm not sure. But there's the way it ends. Well, I don't want to give away how it ends. But um he's just pulling on these lived experiences and I try to just imbue kind of real life understandings as it's connected to the sonic world um, and hope people can kind of find their way through it and not necessarily try to carve everything fully out for audiences, but leave enough room for them so they don't feel it's overly programmatic that they, yeah. they're already attaching a narrative, already attaching an imagery before they've heard a single note because then one closes off. And so for me, it's always, I I think it's best if people come in expecting almost nothing. That's very hard to do because for, for a certain educated audience or trained audiences, you know, there are certain um, kind of like key points or key sounds or or events or actions that happen um, over the course of a performance that they are hoping they're like oh yeah this is happening okay i recognize this okay so i'm really here <laughs> this is this is the the classical concert experience i'm supposed to be having you know so it validates mm -hmm. and then i i think when people think of like the crunchy music i think at times it is my understanding that people feel sometimes they feel lost or they feel like we are keeping something from them or they don't understand the formula or the formula hasn't been spelled out enough for them so they're, therefore they're not a part of the club yeah yeah. I think, you know, what you're saying reminds me of a conversation I have with a lot of composers uh, as it relates to program notes. It seems that there are folks who <laughs> believe that the uh, the concert experience should be, you know, pre-written for people so they know what they're expecting or background on the music. I meet many other composers who want the audience to have 
whatever experience they have and they don't want to uh, inhibit those unique experience with things like program notes or giving away the ending of a piece. I wonder how you uh, approach that concept generally. Do you Are you more on the side of, okay, this is what's going to happen, the, listen for this when we get here, or do you like the idea of audiences going in blind? I love for them to go, <laughs> to go in blind. I mean, but I think at a certain point, based on certain pieces, especially if it's a new work for me, it's important for me to give something for them to hold on to. So you're not kind of flying fully blind there's something to kind of ground you in the experience so you don't so you can walk away even more intrigued and less kind of you know feeling ostracized or kind of blocked out from um from that concert experience when you know what we're trying to do really is to kind of help further cultivate audiences um, and gather new audiences uh, instead of keeping them out. Like only those in the know really should be, you know, should be here. Yeah. There's enough of that happening. So I, I don't really like program notes. <laughs> like sure. the more I've gotten, I just like, no, actually you're not here to read. You're here to listen <laughs> and then be, and be present. Like you're not going to be necessarily like reading along. Like you would be at home as you're, you know, mm -hmm. is it a, is on your stereo or your headphones or whatever the thing is like, this is the, the live concert experience is a very different experience. So it's best that one comes in open and, and available. Um, harder these days with all the distractions, but, but it's better that I put almost no program notes or just choose just simply disregard it altogether and not submit anything um, and then speak from the stage. And, you know, th these live concert experiences, you're going to offer one to folks here in my neck of the woods uh, coming up uh, at the Great Northern Festival. First of all, you know, you're from Houston. You live in Southern California. I hope you know what you're doing coming to Minnesota in January. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, but, I've lived in Vermont and Chicago. And... Also, you get it. OK, so, <laughs> yeah. uh, so so the work that you'll be showcasing um, is Iced Bodies. It sounds like you have a iced cello and you're playing in a wetsuit maybe without again you know coming off of the conversation of program notes without giving too much away i wonder if you can <laughs> offer some context as far as what that performance is going to be yeah so um this is a work it's a ephemeral like um durational work so it's lasting about two and a half hours um and ice bodies in its of itself is kind of rooted and inspired in a work from 1972 by um, the late Charlotte Moorman, cellist and kind of creative muse for a lot of the Fluxus art movement, um, and Jimmy McWilliams, who's based in Pittsburgh, um, who had a long relationship with Charlotte during that time in creation. Um, but Ice Bodies kind of picks up kind of where they left off in the late 70s. And, and this, for me, the work in and of itself stems from my return to the States in 2016 after living in Europe for many years um, and kind of being in Chicago at that time and talking to organizers, but also seeing what was happening on the TV and the injustices, um, both politically uh, and against a wide range of groups, but especially BPOC groups, um, but also looking at mental illness, specifically schizophrenia. So then an area of mental health that I really wanted to highlight um, especially because of the stigmas around it. Um, so the piece in, in and of itself is a commentary on the times. Hmm. And I, along with my colleague, uh, Spencer Topel, we created this ice cello that has 
um, a series of microphones built inside of it. And so I play, you know, in quotations, uh, I play this instrument and over time I destroy it. And there's a whole sound installation that's connected with it. So audiences, it's not like a traditional, you sit down and you watch. <laughs> you're, it's like an installation. So a living installation. So you're allowed to come in and out and move around and get close to, I sit on this giant platform as I perform it and imbued inside of the work um sonically are two poems by the poet Nair Wahid that came from their collection of poetry called Salt. Um, and I was discovering their poetry right around the same time I was moving back. And the words or the poems that I eventually chose spoke so true to kind of where I was in that time and trying to give something back to many communities. At the time, it was very riddled with anger uh, because of that's where I was. Um, and I think at this point now, it has become a piece, uh, a work piece um, that provides space for reflection and healing for that's, multiple communities. That's that's beautiful. I hope folks will put on their coats and put on their gloves and, <laughs> and, and join you. <laughs> I mean, it'll be at the museum, so it'll be warm in there. Oh, I okay. will be cold. I, I will take one for the team. You all will be nice and cozy, okay? So, yeah. <laughs> Great to know. Great to know. I, I want to circle back to uh, academia with my final question, but before I throw it at you, how can folks learn more about you and keep up with all of the things you got going on? Uh, yeah, most of that stuff is... Um, on my website, which is sethparkerwoods.com. Um, but I'm also very active on Instagram. <laughs> you, can, <laughs> you can see some of the stuff there too. My stories is where, you know, you really get to know who I am. <laughs> <laughs> very uh, good, so thank you. So those two platforms is kind of where you can find more information. Um, yeah, like where gotcha. you can get a direct kind of focused link, yeah. So one of the uh, less comfortable conversations that I like to engage when it comes to academia and being a music student is the fact that no matter how great uh, a teacher's studio is, if there's an orchestra job that opens, one of those musicians is getting the job. It's just a, a numbers game. Uh, it seems like aspiration, um, again, aside from skill, aspiration doesn't always meet reality. When we just think about how difficult it is to uh, carve a way into the field, at least uh, in the in the more traditional uh, ways. I wonder how you navigate as a teacher, you know, and at an esteemed uh, institution, the intersection of a student's dreams uh, versus the cold, hard realities of the field. You know, um, there are, I mean, I came up the same way where I thought, you know, I was going to become or was really driving towards becoming a cellist in, in the ballet, in a ballet orchestra or an opera orchestra. And that kind of became my training because the, the, the cellists I was studying with were also principals for, you know, major houses, both here in the in the States, but also in Europe. Um, and eventually I left that <laughs> I mean, I I subbed in many big big orchestras and or opera and ballet orchestras, but um, for me, it's I tried to prepare them to have as many possible options. Hmm. Even like I have one incoming student who's like, I just love orchestra. I I love it so much, and this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And I also this like that would be great, but I I want you to be able to pre be prepared to do more than just orchestra because you just don't know i don't want people to write as my mother would say don't write your life in pen write it in mm. pencil 
Uh, so, cause you just never know what's going to come. So I prepare you having seen what I, at least what I've seen and seen my, my, my mentors and, and teachers be able to do as much as you possibly can so that you have a very well-rounded life. Um, and there are those that are done set on the orchestra gig, you know, and that's what they want to do. And we're going to prepare, we're going to get those excerpts together. We're going to get the concertis together and make sure you understand exactly what actually is happening beyond just chasing the notes, but really be able to play an audition where it feels like you understand the music and, and your role inside of that big engine. Um, but also, I want you to be able to play these concerti and these sonatas and these <laughs> hold your own as a, as, as a solo instrument, be able to do all those different things, um, because you will be called upon to do that. We're not just playing in the larger you know, orchestral setting, but also the chamber music setting or, or maybe to do a solo. So you just don't know. So to be able to have a wide tool belt to call to call from. But if orchestra is your route, also amazing and great. But the reality is that there, there are not enough spots. Um, so while you're you know, auditioning for your life, be able to do these other things and have these other interests as they go alongside of it to enrich your life even more after you leave these doors. R. Andrew Lee there with Seth Parker Woods in a performance of Lines from Michael Vincent Waller's Trajectories, another example of the diversity that is new music. Some of uh, some of uh, that very lyrical, smooth new music there. Uh, and of course, if you're uh, here in Minnesota, uh, coming up this week for the Great Northern Festival, be sure to check out Seth Parker Woods' performance of Iced Bodies. He, uh, as, as he talked about in the interview there, puts on a wetsuit, has this cello <laughs> yeah. made of, of ice, and the sort of theme around it is how this cello is slowly destroyed over the course of the uh, performance of this piece. Many things that we can sort of uh, metaphorically think about going through life and slowly deteriorating, you know, deteriorating over the course of work or or, or however, you, you know, th this isn't necessarily uh, Seth, Seth Parker Woods' take on it, but, mm -hmm. you know, just things to think about and, and to really expand uh, the thinking behind uh, music for a cello and the whole chamber music um, experience. So really excited to uh, be able to feature him this week. Thank you so much, Seth, for becoming a member of the Triloquy family this week. All right, well, we're going to uh, transition into our final movement this week with a piece of music that's much warmer. You know, this isn't an icy piece of music at all. This is actually kind of balmy and, and swampy. Of course, you know, related to the, the theme of the tune, a bit here from Frederick Delius's Florida Suite. Not, not something that I would normally put here on the Triloquy podcast, but something that I think has a, a good place. So let's take a little bit of a listen to this, and then we'll get started in our Florida-themed final movement.
very mysterious, very um, foggy or, or misty, the uh, final movement there is subtitled uh, Night or, or At Night. So Sultry. That's a, that, that's a, a bit of that. The Florida Suite by Frederick Dealey is, is a piece of music that I spent a lot of time airing in, in my first radio job because I really loved the story behind it. You know, I, I read the CD sleeves and do a little bit of research, and I understand that Frederick Delius was someone with uh, rich parents that had, you know, different holdings and, and different things, and they they weren't trying to, you know, have time for him writing, sitting around writing music. You know, you need to do some actual work. So mm-hmm. the compromise was, okay, you don't have to stay here in England. Go over in that this place they're calling the United States. There's an orange grove for you to go manage over there. Go do that. So Frederick Dealey, is he goes and takes that deal so that he could be away from his parents and actually have the time to write music. You know, so that's that's the sort of story that I can get into. You know, that spirit of disobedience. I live, and then of course, you know. You look further and further into history and and more between the lines. You learn that it's not just some orange grove that he was managing, but a full-fledged orange plantation that he was managing from um, being there and watching from the comfort of his porch, you know, in hot Florida, you, you have people breaking their back in that heat, making another family money. Okay, he is hearing certain uh, musical aesthetics, spirituals, and creates um, a suite out of what he was inspired by in Florida. That's a very different story than I'm going over here to get away from my parents to to write music. You know, those those small details that dust in the corner completely changes the way that uh, the story and the legacy of this piece of music is told. I'm thinking about that and, and mentioning all of this because. There was some news that went down in uh, Florida since we last recorded as it relates to black history and and black studies. How about you fill the folks in who uh, who, who may not be up on the news? There is a, a certain line of study that has been dropped from the university system, or is it just one school? Well, it's the AP system across the, high schools. Yeah. Uh, so uh, advanced placement for people who don't know. So college credit in, right. in high school. And uh, black studies is going to be pulled. And just not, just not allowed. Right. I think it's not just about attacking wokeness in the moment. What I think is just so insidious about this is the creation of generational, generational and uh, systemic impact, really normalizing through education a skewed view of history. If one detail about Frederick Delius changes the whole perspective on a piece of music and you know his relation to, uh, to black people here in the United States, taking away an entire course, barring an entire black studies course from school systems has so much more danger. The state of Florida um, is making themselves clear how they feel about their black students, how they feel about black history, and how they feel about most other marginalized groups. I don't think there's any nuance to dig into. This is stuff that they just don't want their students to learn. What I point at when I when I see news like this is that you have governors, you know, like the governor down there in Florida who are, you know, from from the light paying attention to the news that I do, 
may be a con- a contender for the next president of the United States. How do you think he may do? If if you could guess what it would be, do you think it would just be a complete landslide against against DeSantis, or would it be a little different than that if he were to run for president? No, I think he uh, I I think he would definitely get the nomination. Yeah, I don't yeah. know about getting the presidential race. The I don't know about clinching it. Sure, sure. I heard that one of the ways that they went after this uh, AP Black Studies course was saying that one of the units included something about queer theory. Right. And so they go, they went after it from that aspect. I don't know how you get rid of a whole line of a whole line of coursework just over one issue like that. I'm, I don't know how that works. And see what, what I hear is we don't want that ninja education in here and just for good measure, keep the gays out of the conversation too. That's what I hear. Mm-hmm. See, that I, I I don't see them trying to make an excuse. I see them drawing their lines quite clearly. So if if we have, you know, this th- these governmental bodies, you know, this this government that's willing to do this. I mentioned his potential run for president. This isn't a political podcast, but it, it makes me think about it. How are black people supposed to feel about the, you know, 48, 49, 50% of Americans for whom, you know, that that sort of action, that sort of thinking is not a deal breaker, something, you know, that doesn't really bother them all of that much. How are white people supposed to feel about that that 50 or so percent of people that just don't care, you know, folks who see themselves as allies and potential accomplices. What is that supposed to make them feel like that we're united or there's some real problems that are are happening? I I will repeat myself. We we have to not try to find nuance where there isn't nuance. It's it's very clear what these lawmakers think and it's very clear what these lawmakers want to do when we start putting bars and barriers around what students can learn, we're really doing some incredibly, incredibly hard damage. Now, to bring it to the arts, to what degree (laughs) do you think there's a relationship between these levels of systemic racism, you know, altering what you can learn in a classroom, the people who don't really care if these sort of things are happening will support these lawmakers no matter what, and classical programming. For me, there's a direct line. For me, when we're talking about the re-education of students, we're talking about thinking about the history of America in an inaccurate way. Mm -hmm. Of course, Mm -hmm. that means Florence Price, Margaret Bonds, you know, Scott Joplin. why, Why would students have the opportunity to learn about figures like that if AP Black Studies is being barred from these classrooms. And then moreover, the music students in these schools are continued to, to perpetuate this idea of what composer is, what classical music is, because they just don't have the opportunity to learn different. So then you a part of you can't have blamed the kids for not knowing or or sticking to the status quo of, of music and, and certain things because you have folks on higher levels determining what does not belong in a classroom. I think we always have to uh, think about expanding, expansion. Again, we were, we were talking about that with uh, Jeezy, you know, not transformation, but expansion, expanding what belongs in the, uh, in, in, in the concert hall. This is, this is real deal stuff. And 
We, we, we have to stop pretending that it isn't what it is. Uh, I agree with you, but also I have some questions, though, about um, you. Talk more about the relation in classical music, though. That's where I started to fall off about uh, the the shutting down certain areas of study. Mm-hmm. Okay, because I've to- I've mentioned before that I thought that if people only learn about dead white composers, then very soon even that will die. Sure. Even because you know that there 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 won't be people excited about creating their own music to learn the instrument and play the canon. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, okay, so, I think you're making e- exactly my point. Okay. If you're if you're eliminating black studies, you're eliminating not only students' ability to learn about Rosa Parks, you know, um Bernard uh uh, uh Barrett Rustin and all of these people, you're erasing their ability to learn about the historical black composers, mm. which in turn yeah. perpetuates an idea of what classical music is. So I, I think it's very easy to sort of see this as not really having much to do with our art form or, or our industry, but I, I tend to draw those direct lines and see it really quite clearly. Now, as I've also said many times before, our industry has the opportunity to be the example. We can really put more into our study of uh, historically marginalized composers. We can put more effort and more intentionality behind putting new music on stages and maybe putting in the corner the the tradition. We can be the force that can inspire these uh, uh, correlative conversations in architecture and in cuisine and in the way that um, world history and national history is it is is engaged. Music has the opportunity, and I say at this point, the obligation to really dig in those heels and fight against all of the powers that be that are trying to rewrite history. Thoughts and prayers to everyone living down in Florida. I hope that y'all are doing everything that you can to 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 keep the, the, these heinous things from from happening. Shame on everyone who doesn't see this as a as a big deal or, you know, maybe work on expanding your perspective on the importance of really broadened education. And let's continue to continue to continue to continue, I suppose. Thanks, y'all. See you next week. (laughs) 